Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I called my mother last night to research a topic. <laughs> I wanted to double check something about uh, a book called Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which was our next guest's book that she wrote with uh, Louisette Berthold and Simone Beck. It was published in 1961, 35 years ago. And I think that uh, Julia Child is probably one of the most influential people in this country in this half of the century. She is, I think she is responsible for John Barrett writing Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, in fact. <laughs> the connection being that he decided to go off and explore Savannah, Georgia, rather than pay the high prices for Nouvelle Cuisine he was experiencing in New York restaurants. And Nouvelle Cuisine came directly from Julia Child. I mean, she and a Scottish cook, I think, were the two most influential people on American dining experiences. This was the introduction from Mastering the Art of French Cooking, published 35 years ago, to La Belle France, whose peasants, fishermen, housewives, and princes, not to mention her chefs, through generations of inventive and loving concentration, have created one of the world's great arts. Please welcome Julia Child to West Coast. Wonderful to see you. Well, I'm happy to see you again. The last time was in Cambridge, I guess. Yeah, sitting in your kitchen. Yeah, and you didn't have no beard. You know, but I was, uh, <laughs> I was very impressed at the snack food that you served. What did you get, goldfish or what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had this nice German wine, and then you went over to this big bin that had, uh, you reached in your hands and, and pulled out something put in addition that was those little uh, fish. Those little goldfish, yeah. yes, I love them. <laughs> That's one of the things that's always struck me about your cooking is that you do what you like, not what people might expect of you to do. I know people will say, you don't eat at McDonald's, do you? Well, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> Where else do you eat that people might not think you'd eat? Well, hot dogs at the baseball park. Usually the buns are a bit mushy, though. <laughs> and do you speak to the management about that? Well, I had to do it for the Boston Globe, and I wrote about it. I said that the Franks were good, but the buns were mushy. And I got no response. Well, it's too bad that you were ignored there, but I, you know, it's, it's clear that your pleasure in food changed the way that people in this country eat. I think I was the first one on the, on the tube who was doing cooking. There, was, there wasn't anyone when I was there, and I had it had the airwaves to myself for <clears throat> about a year and a half. You know, there's a, there's a legend here that I want to uh, address. Um, one of your uh, former PBS colleagues, Robert McNeil, was oh, here yes. and sat in this chair. And not only does he do a fantastic impersonation of you. Yeah, he does. Well, I've, I've tried doing it of him, but I don't know that much. You could try saying, good night, Jim, or something. <laughs> 
But he, uh, he said that, that there was an episode that he and his wife always talk about where he dropped you know, a, a haunch of something on the ground and picked it up, slapped it, and put it back in the oven. And I said that I had talked with you, and you had never, you claimed that you'd never done that. Oh, I never had. I think it's funny what people are sure that they saw. All I did <laughs> was I was flipping potato pancakes, and I flipped one right into the stove. So I picked it up and dumped it back in the pan, and I said, you're all, in the, all alone in the kitchen. Who's going to know? <laughs> And I don't know how that turned out to be a chicken, but... You know, I think, I think it eventually became a leg of lamb, then at some time, you know, a whole roasted pig or something. You know, something like that. And then one, at one point, I was peeling, seeding, and juicing a tomato, and that became swigging wine out of a bottle, <laughs> which, of course, I would never do in public. <laughs> Well, we won't ask all that you do in, in private there. The, uh, so not only have you influenced the way we eat and the kinds of food that we like to look and the expectation of, of pleasure in eating, but in some ways there's been kind of a backlash, not against you, but against that style of rich eating, you know, the, the Ornish diet, the fat-free diets, the macrobiotic diets. Well, I had a, I sort of dined out on the fact that I think one of our last books, I was interviewing, being interviewed by somebody on the radio, and he had just interviewed a diet doctor who, rather like this other fellow you were talking about, who didn't eat any fat at all. He was kind of a greenish-yellow color. <laughs> and the worst thing was, he was covered in dandruff. <laughs> so... If you want to look like that, go on one of those diets. So, so you would suggest a, a liberal application of butter? Absolutely. Well, sensible, well-balanced diet and having a good time and watching your weight and doing a proper exercise and, and as we say, small helpings. Small helpings. Have you ever, is there any dish that you've ever just really liked to pig out on? Well, baked potatoes with loads of butter on them. I just love that. The, uh, and, and you are, let's see, somewhere around 80? I, I'm 84. 84. But I'm a, I'm a, good, I'm a good, good example of proper eating and having a good time. <laughs> So when you, when you, uh, when you travel, what, uh, you, and you're doing a, a tour now for, for this new book um, on the art of baking, what, uh, uh, what do you try to avoid on your, on your travels? Is there any uh, sort of eating regimen that you want to practice? Bad food. <coughs> we've had quite a bit of that, where we've had some lovely food here. But this is a nice profession because I'm, I, we have this baking show now, and, and we're and we have had our other shows on Master Chef, so every place we go, we make sure that some of our chefs are around, and we eat very well. We were at Masses last night, for instance, and that was divine. Was there, was there anything that, uh, that you'd like to speak of on the, on the plate there that really stood out for you? Well, we, we had a lovely, a, a very unusual dish. It, it was creamed spinach, and it had a, an egg, a little poached egg on top of that, and a nice sauce and some white truffles. 
and then all mixed up together when you when you ate it and the yolk was running out into the spinach and then the white truffles were flavoring. It was just a lovely dish, just a small one. And I like, I think small helpings of something delicious is a nice way to do. Have you, as you've as you've grown older, changed your eating habits then? You go for the smaller portions, you, you order from the hors d'oeuvre section rather than the entrees of the menu? Well, I, I, I usually eat only about a, about a third of what I'm served. I think in this country, too, they're inclined to give you enormous helpings. And I'd be a Mrs. Six by Six if I ate it all. <laughs> when you were doing the television show and when you do them, you would often have to prepare dishes in advance that were finished. Mm -hmm. And uh, was it a plum assignment to work on the crew of your show? Well, this, I mean, everybody enjoyed that. I remember when we first began, people, a lot of our crew had never eaten an artichoke, or they never had, had fresh asparagus. I suppose they were eating frozen TV dinners. And so it was <laughs> nice to find them really eating everything and enjoying it. The only time they left before we had the serving was when we had snails. <laughs> Though they were awfully good, but I think just the idea of the snail didn't appeal to them. But, but we always say it's like going to a Chinese restaurant or is eat it, don't ask what it is. It's a, it, it, it can be an interesting challenge being in, uh, in, in China once, uh, sitting at a table at Shanghai, in Shanghai. Even my Chinese guide did not know what a particular food item was on the table. She sort of poked at it with her chopsticks and said, well, it might be fish. Or maybe it was the fish eye, or maybe the tongue, or something like that. You know, I think that's the interesting thing about countries where they've had famines and so forth, and if they're really good cooks, like the Chinese or the French, they'll, they'll cook something just like a chicken's feet, so that they're absolutely delicious, but you don't know what it is but it becomes an Epicurean delight. And you'd be horrified at first if you knew that it was just the bones of a chicken's foot. There was one dish uh, served there to, to somebody I met on the trip, uh, and he was being honored, and it was this dish that looked like spaghetti. Mm. Uh, but there was a little black dot at the end of each one of the strands, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be some rare, exotic, freshwater fish. Huh. Yeah. Was it good? Well, he made the mistake of asking what it was. Ah, oh, that's, that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> One of your descriptions in, I think it was in The Mastering of the Art of French Cooking, which is 35 years ago, mm. um, it was a description of the monkfish. Mm. Uh, oh, yes. Which, which was served in restaurants because it became kind of a poor, a poor man's equivalent of lobster, the texture. The, the, the meat came from the tail. Oh, I had never seen a monkfish, in the, even in France, where you have a lot of them. They never show the monkfish, and I happened to be at our fish market, do you remember legal seafood in Cambridge? And they had monk tails, and I happened to know Roger, the manager. And I said, gosh, now where'd you get them? And he said, well, right off the coast here. And I said, could you get me a whole fish? I thought it would be wonderful on television. And so we did get a whole fish, and it has an enormous head about like that, you know, and, and a great big mouth, 
and you open up the mouth and there are rows and rows of very, very fine teeth and, and this enormous head and then just a small tail. It's about, say, t 10 inches long and you have to peel that and there's this delicious white meat. But the fish was so ugly that they, the people would say well, it's so ugly it can't taste good. But it is delicious, so that's one reason they never show it. It's a, it's, I think it's also called the anglerfish because it has a little, uh, like a little spotlight off of its head. What it does, it swims along on the bottom, and it has this little spike, or sort of a little wavy antenna on the top of its head with a little flag on it, and so it lies in the sand and waves a flag, and then fish come by or anything, and it goes, come with it. <laughs> mouth it eats anything. <clears throat> I think your phrase for it was it was about the size of a baby grand piano and it was the Sydney Green Street of the Deep. Exactly, that was right. The, uh, in, in looking through the mastering art of French cooking, you've got chapters, for instance, on the, on the preparation of eels, which is something I think most of us will eat in sushi restaurants, but mm -hmm. not necessarily cook for ourselves. It involves what, preparation with a pair of pliers? Well, you have to usually you nail its head to the wall, <laughs> then you cut around the t top of the head with a knife, and then you take your pliers and pull the skin down. And there you have a naked eel, ready to, <laughs> ready to eat. Now, have you done that in your time? I must have done it once or twice, a long time ago, though, when we were living in France. But now in our new pastry show, we don't have things like that. <laughs> It doesn't somehow fit that image. No, it's more, more civilized, I think. Well, what's, what's the most violent thing you do in your, in your pastry show? Well, I guess beating puff pastry with a big pin. <laughs> you have to beat it because it's cold and you want to beat it to start going. And then get it to the, to the right consistency temperature? Yes, yeah, so that you can then roll it out as it should be. So w when you eat, how much do you snack? When you cook, how much do you snack? No snack. I think that's one reason we see so many monstrously fat people around this country, which is too bad, of snacking. But I think if you eat three proper meals, you're looking forward to the next one, so you don't snack, you don't want to spoil your appetite. But I think the, the French now don't snack at all. Don't they, I'm, sometimes I've gone into their patisseries, like in the afternoon, and, and they'll, they'll buy three or four of those pastries, sit down and just eat them. Well, then they probably won't be eating any dinner. But they, they just don't. They will, they will have, an, say, an afternoon tea sometimes. And then we're not used to paying so much. One of those little tiny three, <clears throat> two-inch pastries can cost you five or six dollars. But they're delicious. Every bite is heaven. Do you find yourself slowing down toward the end of a dish? You mean... In pace, in terms of pace, like you see like you've got this small dish and it's in the portions going away and, and do you slow down or do you speed up? That would be sensible to have that much restraint. Is that, <laughs> is that what you do? It depends on, uh, oh, it's, it's, it depends, I guess, on the flavor of the dish, you know, how, uh, and, and what, whether the, the satisfaction of the food in the mouth is, is, is one that you want. And I think one of those real French pastries with real French buttercream, it's so delicious, and that little hint of liqueur in it, 
it's, it's hard to slow down. What, what do you have in your refrigerator at home at the moment? Well, I haven't been home for two weeks, so I hope there's nothing in it. <laughs> I actually have. Well, you know, the usual eggs and butter and milk and cream and apples and onions and then something nice, I hope. The makings for doing something. I can always whip up a meal. With, with whatever's there and then you sprinkle in some of those fish? No, I eat the fish first. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the career that you've had of, of, of being author, of being uh, television personality, of, of being chef, um, has been one that, that's, that's also been parodied. You're the, you're the object of, of much imitation. Well, like the Saturday Night Live, <laughs> save the liver. Uh, I well, that's the only one I really know. So I imagine that, that one day, 20 years from now, you'll be on a postage stamp. What, what flavor would you like on that adhesive, do you think? Licorice, do you think? That might be nice. I haven't had any licorice since I was 10, I think. I don't know. It's, it would be a toss-up between like an Elvis Presley stamp and a Julia Child stamp, you know? That'll be the day, I must say. <laughs> Tell, tell me about uh, uh, Simone Beck and uh, Louisette uh, Bertoldi, your original collaborators on the Mastering the Art of French Cooking. They were, they were wonderful. Simone Beck was called Simka, and she was, we always called her La Super Francaise. She was just completely French, and she, she was funny to work with at, at times, because she was very, as the French very often are, very definite. This is the way it is. And then the next day, she'd have an entirely different opinion. You would say, well, well, Simka, now yesterday, that was yesterday. <laughs> well, she was, she was a wonderful cook and very, very good on pastry. And she has two or three books out here, but her first two are menu books. And people love them because they're very French indeed and in, in, in the meal and the menu. And she was a great deal of fun and a very generous person when we decided we'd like to have a little, a little second house in France, rather, somewhere else. And we looked around and didn't find anything. And she, she and her husband loaned us a piece of property on their property. So we built our little house there. And then she furnished it and looked after it when we weren't there. And she was just a very generous person. And people loved taking courses with her because she was very funny as well as very good. <laughs> Would she ever drop anything and just put it back in the, in, the, in the pot? No, she had much more sort of formal ideas about things than I did. Well, that's part of being French too, right? I think so. And then Louise, I have somewhat lost touch with her, but I, she's, she's in her 90s now. And I, I hope she's still around, but I'm not sure. Simka, Simka died at 88. Well, this, this seems to be uh, a tribute to, uh, to diet and kitchen exercise, I guess, right? Yes, well, I think, well, when you think of Escoffier lived to be 93, and it's a good profession to be in, as well as being a great deal of fun. I think if you're, 
it's a healthy life, at least from my point of view. Well, particularly if you're doing all that sort of uh, upper body exercise, <laughs> stirring, whipping, beating, yes, pulling, exactly. nailing, chopping. Whacking mm -hmm. <laughs> up chickens and so forth. Ever wrung a chicken's neck? I never have. I always thought that that would be an essential part of understanding the food chain in some way. I think it would be. And then if you want to do, you know, a pressed duck, and then you know what a duck presses like that big cylinder and a big wheels, and you put the duck carcass in, it goes and all the juice comes out. That was invented by the Marquis de Sade, wasn't it? He didn't like duck. <laughs> but you have to have a suffocated duck because you have to have the blood in its carcass so that the juice will come out. I don't know how you suffocate a duck. Well, um, I'm, I'm sure the anti-vivisectionists know. And I guess the animal rights people, I'm sure. They will, they will have uh, uh, broadsides about exactly how that process is done. That's a, uh, I didn't know that about one suffocating the duck and needing the blood in the carcass. Well, if you don't have it, you wouldn't have the, all the juice that you need. Well, of course, those are the juices from meats as well. It's the blood juice. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we, we uh, sort of anesthetize ourselves about what it is we're eating. And I think that, for instance, we would have much different attitudes about beef if we called it uh, cow in the same way that horse meat is called horse or cheval. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think so. Though I think a cow is always female, and you don't eat the females. You eat the, uh, the steers. Yes, exactly. And then we have all this problem about veal and how cruel it is, because they've got those lovely brown eyes and you're keeping them up. I was visiting a farm in Sonoma County here a while back, and there was this beautiful little calf, three months old, beautiful big brown eyes, mm -hmm. and I complimented the, the farmer on this handsome calf, and he said, yep, we're going to veal him out next week. <laughs> and I went, I think so few people nowadays know anything about raising livestock or know anything at all about how to raise animals. That, that, and they personalize them rather than thinking of them on the plate. The, uh, have you ever kept livestock of any kind? Cats, dogs, cattle? Oh, cats and dogs. I haven't ate them. Not, <laughs> not edible animals. The, uh, uh, if, if somebody was starting out as a, uh, as a cooking student now, uh, where would you recommend that they study to go? Would, they, would you recommend going back to France? Well, I would recommend for a young person first getting a really good education and doing as much cooking as possible, maybe in the summers working with a restaurant. And then I would certainly... I would certainly go to one of the good culinary schools. There's a good one here in the here in San Francisco, and then of course you've got the CIA back east. Was it the CIA? You used to work for their predecessor, right? The OSS. <laughs> yes. Was it the Culinary Institute of America? <laughs> is that what that is? That, no, that's the one that in, in Hyde Park, New York. Yeah. Well, it's become a wonderful profession, though. And it used to be kind of a dumping ground. And, and in Europe, it's still not considered one of the 
if you sent your child to the university and then he or she ended up in the kitchen, you'd think you'd go down the social scale because handwork is, is artisan work. But I think in this country now, it's really become a, an accepted and an honored profession. And we have a master's degree. We have one in Boston University, I think, and NYU's getting a master's. And I think most of the big culinary schools are you're going to get a bachelor's degree. How large is your collection of cookbooks? I have no idea. As I've, we have the culinary collection at Harvard Radcliffe at the, at the Schlesinger Library. And so I turn everything over to them. Do you ever have to call them up and say, I need, uh, can you look up something for me here? I'm right in the middle of uh, this gateau. Yes, yes I do, or, or I'll get strange questions, and I always turn them over to the Schlesinger. They love to answer them, and if any, any of our audience has a really collection of cookbooks and they'd like to bequeath them, give them to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard Radcliffe. Because it's, it's they have a remarkable collection now. They have MFK Fisher and quite a number of people. What kind of stains are in some of your books? Chocolate. Beef blood, <laughs> dirty fingers, <laughs> everything. Well, thank you for your handwork and uh, your education and uh, pleasure that you've given us all over the years. Julia Child. Well, I've enjoyed your radio program very much. It's, it's unique. Thank you. Julia Child. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org. Thank you.